Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. On today's show, we'll be joined again by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. And this week, the euro fell below parity with the dollar for the first time in 20 years. Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times is going to give us his view on what it means for the ECB's approach to raising interest rates. And I'll be asking him what it'll all mean for the broader economic landscape here in Ireland and more importantly, how it might affect your pocket. It's hard to believe, but commercial property in Ireland has bounced back to almost pre-pandemic levels. An industry expert from Savills is going to explain exactly why commercial and office space in Ireland is still in really high demand despite all of the fundamental changes that have happened in our working lives. And finally, QAnon. It's the strange and subterranean US political movement. Since it first started in 2014, it's been fueled by a strange and unknown character known only as Q. Now, after two years of silence, Q is back and we'll be digging into who might be behind the movement that's changed the bloodstream of American democracy. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Well, first up today, this week, the ECB played down the fact that the euro has dropped below parity against the dollar for the first time in almost two decades. Does that make it harder for the ECB to hike interest rates? And could it exacerbate the rate differential gap between those two currencies? Joining me now to discuss is Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Mandy. Now, Cliff, developments on the economic front are a mile a minute at the moment. Uh, The matrix of macroeconomic policy is always very difficult to predict. But just start us off by telling us what exactly happened between the dollar and the euro this week. Yeah, it's hard to keep up at the moment, all right. Uh, We had the dollar, uh, the euro falling to below one dollar for the first time in, in many years. And really what this illustrates, I suppose, is... uh, divergent expectations on the European economy and the American economy and particularly fears that Europe is going to be hit harder by the uh, Russian war, obviously geographically closer, obviously more exposed to Russian energy and the knock-on from prices there. So that is, I suppose, the most obvious reason why the euro is weak at the moment, why the dollar has been gaining a bit of ground. That said, uh, central banks in both both countries are, um, are, are struggling to keep up uh, inflation came in at over 9% in the US this week, 9.1% last month. Uh, Again, higher than people had expected and raising expectations that the Federal Reserve Board having increased interest rates by 0.75 of a point at last, three quarters of a point at their last meeting might go by a full point at their next meeting at the end of July. Yeah, uh, Cliff, I wanted to ask you about that because it just begs the question then, does the interest rate that happened the last time, has it had any effect at all in controlling inflation? And is it the case that they're actually factoring in the next uh, increase before they even happen on the, in terms of how the markets view these rates increases? Really, the problem is not uh, the normal kind of cause of inflation, which is kind of economic growth going mad, people spending right, left and centre, and prices going up for that reason. Uh, now we're seeing, I suppose, the it, it, you know, it's not a demand, it's not demand factors that are pushing up inflation, it's at the other side, it's supply factors, mainly of energy. And the problem for central banks is that increasing interest rates doesn't directly hit that problem. Mm. Uh, it does, they hope, stop knock-on inflation. Uh, but it doesn't uh, 
kind of address the main cause. So that that is the, the real difficulty for central banks at the moment. And there's there's all this talk that inflation is going to come down next year pretty sharply, and maybe it will. Uh, who, who knows? But there's also kind of a feeling in the back of people's minds. You know, the central banks no more than the rest of us really don't know what's going to happen next. But 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 of course, the fact that U.S. interest rates have uh, have gone up so much, and that Europe hasn't got started on that road yet, though it will next week, uh, is 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 another reason why the dollar is, is 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 strong and the euro is weak because people can get a bit of return now from buying U.S. assets, so they can buy U.S. government bonds and get a return of three percent or more. Um, they can they can leave their money in the bank there and, and get a higher return, whereas Europe is only kind of starting out now at the interest rate uh, the interest rate increase road next week Just a final point on those US inflation figures um, I noticed that the the core pricing was a big issue in those figures it's not just the transitory issues like energy supply D- does that have an effect or can that be a predictor of a much longer term, term inflationary period Yeah that is the thing that central banks will really worry about so they hope that um, the food and energy, which are the two most volatile ones, will wash through quickly, if you like, uh, and that there's not much they can do about them anyway. But they do worry when uh, price increases spread out across the economy. And of course, there's a whole, a whole host of other factors as well. Supply chains are messed up. Um, energy cost increases are being passed on to consumers. So there's a whole host of things pushing up inflation now, and both in Europe and the US, as you say, the core rate, excluding uh, the volatile factors, is increasing now as well. So what energy and, and food coming behind it are still by far the biggest culprits. There are a lot of other things now in the mix as well. So uh, messy picture. And in general, um, Cliff, when something happens in the US and if, if the US did tip into recession, does that likely spill over into Europe as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could, uh, and it often does, because uh, obviously the two economies are selling to each other, and there's also kind of a confidence effect from one to the other. So there are fears, yeah, that the US is going to slip into a recession, uh, partly due to the higher interest rates, which the central bank is bringing in now, and there are fears that, that Europe's heading the same direction. I yeah. mean, the, the real fears at the moment in Europe are of Russian gas supplies, and if Vladimir Putin is to cut off gas quickly uh, to, uh, or, or completely to mm. Europe uh, that's going to hit Germany Italy the Eastern European economies very yeah. very hard very quickly Now Germany as you mentioned there they're obviously very tied into uh, Russian gas and one of the the key dependents of that supply but they're also a very good indicator of what's about to transpire across Europe how is their economy faring at the moment? There's still some growth there, but the confidence indicators are all pointing in the wrong direction. So there's been really big hits to consumer and business confidence. And it's really all around this this issue of gas supply uh, and obviously the cost of living pressures that, mm. that, that everyone is facing. So, I mean, there's there's going to be a few, I think, big moments in the next month or two. As, as early as next week, we'll see what the, the European Central Bank does in terms of interest rates. Quarter point increase is expected. And also, um, there's a big gas pipeline between Russia and um, and Germany, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which has been closed for maintenance this week and is due to reopen next week. And one of the reasons why wholesale markets of gas have increased so much this week is there's a fear that uh, a reason might be found to not reopen it, uh, that Vladimir Putin may choose to increase the pressure on on Europe by, by, by cutting off gas completely or by dialing it down further. Now, some people feel, you know, that may not happen, uh, that he still needs the revenue. Uh, so we, we just don't know what's going to happen. But it does illustrate 
I think despite Europe's effort to diversify, that it is still very heavily reliant on uh, in the short term. Yes, on, yeah. On decisions from Moscow. The, the continuing hold that Russia has on that energy supply market Absolutely. over Europe. Yeah. You've been writing Absolutely. about that and you've also been writing about the threat that the UK have on or could have uh, on Ireland. Oh, they could have us over a barrel, forgive the pun. But mm. um, can you just explain what that means about the supply side from the UK to Ireland and how that could be um, in jeopardy in the coming uh, months ahead if the UK themselves became um, short of, of import supplies uh, on, on the gas front from Europe? Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a slightly tricky one, I suppose. And there's a few there's a few links and and things that we're going to have to watch over the next few months. But um, obviously, a lot a lot of Europe, Germany, and, and Eastern Europe is directly reliant on Russian gas, uh, whereas Europe, Ireland, and the UK isn't. Now, the main impact for us at the moment of restrictions in gas supply is higher prices, and that's a really heavy impact. In terms of the supply of gas, we get about three quarters of our gas from the UK. The rest comes from the carb field. And in turn, um, that gas that the UK has comes from the North Sea, its own producers, and also from Norway. So there have been some fears that, you know, as part of international agreements, the Norwegians uh, might come under pressure uh, to redirect some gas to other markets um, in continental Europe. There are kind of technical issues there about how much can fit down pipelines Mm. at a particular time from Norway to the continent and also the fact that some of their pipelines go directly uh, from Norwegian fields to the UK and and, and don't go anywhere else, if, if you see what I mean. So at the moment, the UK is saying, look, we're all right, we're confident of our gas supplies uh, number one and number two that current agreements are that the Irish market would be treated the same as the UK market in the event of any you know shortage of gas. It's pretty precarious though isn't it given the volatility that's happening in the political system in the UK at the moment you know. Yeah absolutely. I'd wonder if their own supplies compromise would they you know, would they be very willing to think of Ireland first? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, then I just, yeah, it's uh, a hard, it's it's a hard one to call, but uh, and certainly, the fact that we're so reliant on the UK, uh, on one source, is not you know from a long term energy security point of view, it it, it surely isn't ideal. Not ideal, no. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Um, just going back to the broader picture then on the economic front, uh, Cliff, there's warnings from the IMF about countries who have high debt levels, that's us. Countries who might be facing big wage issues ahead of them, that's us. Countries who have significant amounts of exchequer spending, that's us. Are we in danger of piece by piece uh, getting into the same difficulties that we had before and just being deaf again to the warnings of international agencies like the IMF. Oh gosh, I hope not. <laughs> and history maybe doesn't repeat itself exactly, but but yeah, of course there are there are dangers out there. Um, I mean, I suppose one of the encouraging signs in the first half of the year is, despite everything and despite high costs and housing crisis and all kinds of stuff here, that foreign direct investment is still running at record levels um, in the first half of the year. Now, there was a warning as well when the IDA announced the results recently that you know, because of international factors, they expected you know, there was a risk it might slow down a bit in, mm. the, um, in the second half of the year. And I think Martin Shannon, who's the IDA chief executive, ma- made an interesting point. He said, you know, a lot in the years ahead will depend on what he called the carrying capacity of the Irish economy. In other words, the capacity to deliver housing, 
the capacity to deliver energy and the capacity to deliver skilled staff through the education system that that foreign direct investment needs and that all investors need really mm. and that an economy needs to operate so yeah they're they're the dangers i think um and at the moment everyone's everyone's facing the same inflation hit if you like and it's and it's it's very painful for 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 people across europe for people everywhere yeah and there isn't a huge divergence in the figures but there would be a worry here if we were stuck with higher inflation for longer than anywhere else. Well, it is, or we don't, you know, we don't get to grips with the with the housing issues and the the other ones that were that everyone knows. In a shameless attempt to try and get this back to something positive uh, and going <laughs> back to the gap between the euro and the dollar, apart from the American yeah. tourists who seem to be all over Ireland at the moment, is there anybody who will actually benefit from this uh, differential in the exchange rates? Yeah, I mean, it's, it does have some good news. Uh, certainly, good news for exporters. So Irish exporters to the US um, will rarely have a better a better time to uh, to sell product in that market. So that is good. Uh, on the flip side, of course, it does push the price of imports up. Uh, and as you say, it's it's good for tourists coming here from America and for you know people selling them mm. products and services in Ireland. Uh, poor for Irish people who who've decided uh, having after a few years of being shut in to head to America for for a holiday um they're going to find their bills are are a good deal higher so there is a there is a there is a plus and minus to it all right um i mean the interest rate thing is going to be interesting now for people a, a weaker euro does make it more complicated for for the european central bank because it pushes up fr- prices further so that's bad mm. uh, but there has also in the markets in recent weeks been kind of a bit of a change in expectation and investors saying look the, because the economy economic outlook is weakening in uh, in europe maybe interest rates aren't going to go up as quite as much as we expected that's going to be a really interesting one to watch uh, how far will central banks go if economies weaken in terms of putting up interest rates and in trying to control um, the inflation figure do they also have in their minds and these what what people can bear what households can bear um, in short, no, they don't. Um, the well, sorry. The, it, theoretically, the Europe, the ECB's only goal is to control inflation and to keep it around two percent. So it, it's then up uh, to individual member states to do what they can to try and live with those interest rate increases yeah. and do what our government are trying to do. I suppose a final word to you, Cliff, on this, if I may. Yeah, I mean, just the other yeah. thing I suppose is that that's the, that's the theory. In practice, what the markets are betting on at the moment is. Well, maybe central banks aren't going to be that heartless and the, the reality is they will come under pressure if economies do slow. Yeah. A final question and, and, and briefly, just because we're running out of time, Cliff, um, what was your take on the summer economic strategy statement last week? Do you think that this will do enough to, to help households shoulder the burden of what's ahead in the winter? Yeah, there's a fair bit of money there, but look, it's going to be used up fairly quickly. Mm. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think... And I think the government, I mean, it, it's very hard politically to know what the right thing to do is, but they've decided because they don't know how bad things are going to be in the autumn to hold off a bit and wait and wait and see before they decide what will finally be done. Um, if things don't get any worse and if energy prices were to ease a bit, th- there probably is enough there. I think the question comes if, if prices take another hike higher, um, that then becomes difficult for the government. Uh which who you know who would then face the question well how long is this going to go on for is this just a few months or is it something 
mm. you know, higher prices that are going to stick around for a long period of time. That's the real unknown, you know. Well, um, judging by the opinion polls in your own newspapers this week, uh, the the public certainly don't seem to have a lot of confidence that that will be the case. A very gloomy yeah. outlook ahead. But there are certainly difficulties ahead for the government and more importantly for households to try and kind of prepare themselves for this winter. But for now, we Absolutely. leave it there. That's Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, thank you for your insights today. Thanks, Wendy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, office space in Ireland is at a premium again. Could we soon be facing the same shortages that we're seeing in the domestic property market? Find out after the break. As we all know, the pandemic pulled the shutters down and turned the lights out on millions of square feet of office space for almost two years. But how is the sector coping with the creep back to physical office presence and the large amount of multinationals that are now based here in Ireland? To discuss, I'm joined now by Shane Duffy, who's Director of Office at Savills. Shane, thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Mandy. Now, we've heard an awful lot about private housing and the private rental sector, but how does the commercial sector look post-pandemic, Shane? Um, Probably a lot healthier than people might give credence to it, uh, Mandy. I suppose we've had a turbulent period over the last two years. I'm primarily focusing on on the office market. We had our Armageddon moment uh, around March 2020 when the pandemic hit. Um, I think the reality is even at that stage, nobody really knew what the future of the office market looked like. We went from a very healthy scenario pre-COVID to kind of a turbulent period, question marks over just what the future of the office was going to look like. And I'd say fast forwarding even two years from then, a lot of occupiers are probably still not certain. Um, we, if we generally measure the health of the office market based on the quantum of take-up or the vacancy rates in the market, not necessarily uh, the rents that are being achieved. So if we look at it holistically and in simplistic terms, there's probably about 45 million square feet of office space across Dublin City. That includes uh, vacant and occupied space. Um, So if we look at pre-COVID scenario, Mandy, we've seen a healthy level of take-up in 2018 and 19. In fact, 2018 was a record take-up. So um, across the market, um, just to put it in simplistic terms, there's about 45 million square feet of office space that's occupied and unoccupied. And what's the percentage um, there? Like how much is vacant? Uh, we're looking at about 8% year on year. So again, general consideration would have been that should have risen uh, during the COVID period or certainly beyond that. Um, it's generally remained steady. It's been quite consistent. It obviously ebbs and flows year on year, mm. just depending on the quantum of take-up. But it's been remained consistently steady, uh, even over the last number of months post-COVID. So we're, we're essentially back to where we were in 2019, is that right? Um, I wouldn't say we're just at those levels, um, but there's certainly a lot of positive sentiment around the market. I think we went through that period of turbulence where we didn't necessarily know what the future of the office mm. environment was going to look like. A lot of occupiers are still trying to to get their head around what it looks uh, respectively. I suppose there's no one-shoe-fits-all solution, um, but what's one occupier doesn't necessarily work for others. I think the general consideration would have been that tech occupiers might look to offload a lot of their space. And bearing in mind, some of these occupiers are tied into long-term leases, and the majority of them don't physically own uh, their real estate in Dublin. Um, We expected during that COVID period that many of them would look to offload a lot of their space. That didn't happen. Mm. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that I suppose in in an international context, Dublin is a relatively small city. Um, So, you know, a big tech firm in Dublin might 
only have maybe 200, 250 employees, which would translate into about maybe 20 or 30,000 square feet. Now, that might compare some of the bigger cities globally, and they might have up to 500,000 square feet. So when it comes to actually shedding space in the Dublin context, generally doesn't move the dial that much, so they're not as sensitive towards it. So a lot of them have just retained what they've had. Mm. Obviously, their their density levels and their occupancy ratios have reduced in some cases, maybe significantly. In many cases, some of the occupiers mightn't necessarily have repopulated the office to where they were pre-COVID. But the level of footprint that they have uh, has generally remained stable. One other thing that we've noticed is that obviously, um, particularly in the ICT sector and indeed in financial services, there's been an increase an office-based employment to the extent that we've probably seen since 2019, um, about 100,000 new employees across the tech sector and financial services. That would typically translate into about 1.5 million square feet of physical office space if all of those employees were um, were to gravitate towards an office. So I think what we're seeing is that employees are generally increasing across the board, particularly in the tech sector. Um, but the quantum of office space they have has generally remained consistent. In some cases, obviously, uh, they've reduced it to an extent. Some of the figures uh, there, Shane, companies signed up for almost almost 500,000 uh, square feet of office space in the first three months of this year. Does that mean that the working from home theory is over uh, or there are just more people working in offices now? I think it's really down to the fact that there's more people physically working in an office environment by the by. Um, Certainly, as I mentioned, I don't think we've got back to the levels we were pre-COVID. What we're seeing is that most companies have adopted a hybrid model. Now, a hybrid model that works for one occupier doesn't necessarily work for another. So I think it's it's probably prudent for each individual occupier just to figure out exactly uh, what how many office employees are going to physically come back into office on a day uh, day by day basis? What we've typically seen is um, just in a general demographic perspective is that um, the older cohort are generally quite happy. A lot of these people have obviously done their commute time over the years um, and they're generally living in suburbia or outside of the city, and they're generally quite content to stay at home. And mm. um, the younger staff generally want to get into back into a working environment because obviously that's where they learn their trade. Obviously, there's an out-of-sight, out-of-mind perspective and all of that as well when it comes to promotions, bonuses and, and just general considerations like that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. I'm talking to Shane Duffy, who's Director of Office at Savills. Shane, what about that issue of uh, the great resignation? Uh, we've seen a lot of companies very, very, you know, tentatively dealing with um, their staff because the the drive for talent is is so difficult at the moment. HR people terrified to move at any kind of pace and mm. uh, that workers are not comfortable with. That has caused landlords a lot of difficulty over the last two years. But is it time now that those smaller landlords who've had to deal with those issues, that there's a sense that it's a seller's market for them now? Um, not necessarily. I suppose it depends on their own uh, exit strategy, depending on what properties they have. Um, I suppose when it comes to, to that period, um, what we've, we've generally seen, Mandy, over the last um, two years, I suppose, that, that hasn't really been much precedent for it, but um, landlords are typically finding that um, 
you know, with leases are not being handed back or if they have a vacancy rate within their building are generally in a position to fill it. Mm. I think the key trend we're seeing, the key emergence that we've seen, and, and it's really accentuated itself over the last two years, is the emergence of um, the ESG agenda. So ESG obviously stands for environmental, social and, and, and governance. And effectively, what that means is that there's a flight to quality across the market. So occupiers are typically trying to get the best piece of real estate they can find in the best location to ensure that they can attract and retain the right staff. So that war for talent is the primary consideration for occupiers when they're considering their real estate strategy. Um, so if you look at it in a Dublin context, there's probably less than 20% of all commercial office buildings that would actually take that ESG agenda for occupiers that have the sustainability credentials. That's interesting. Um, that so, so, so the building can be part of your ESG evaluation and that companies are taking that into consideration now? Very much so. So what we've seen in recent times is a lot of occupiers have gone back for older stock buildings where they've got themselves maybe a pretty good deal during yeah. COVID, yeah. but they're in older stock buildings that are not energy efficient, not sustainable. And when they look for board approval, maybe back in the West Coast or elsewhere, uh, they're generally turned down because it doesn't comply with the ESG strategy or indeed the corporate social responsibility strategy of these firms. So yeah. there is an absolute flight to quality. Yeah, and I want to talk to you about some of those bigger commercial entities in a moment. But can I ask you um, about rural office space outside of Dublin? What's happening there? Um, I suppose the general consensus would have been is that there would have been an emergence of more activity in provisional uh, office space or certainly rural office space. Hasn't necessarily happened to the extent that we would have expected. Um, if we look at even just Dublin holistically, um, suburban office market has actually reduced in terms of the level of take-up uh, and quantum of activity over the last two years, where you would have expected um, there would have been uh, a lot of people kind of removing themselves from, from a CBD location. It, there's generally not a great provision of office space outside of the city, uh, Mandy. It's, it's generally prudent for all FDI occupiers coming in to Ireland to look at the major urban hubs around Cork, Limerick, Galway, Dublin and to a lesser extent maybe the likes of uh, Lone Waterford and um, some of those areas. Yeah, that, so that, we don't that, see that, much activity. That's very interesting Shane because the reason I ask that question is because a lot of people have moved outside of Dublin. I'm hearing of a lot of people moving to uh, m maybe not just r rural Ireland but bigger urban yeah. centres and, and using that opportunity. So I thought maybe there'd be um, a, a development towards remote working hubs. You don't see any of that in a large uh, scale. It's in its infancy. It's in its right. infancy. It's certainly something you would have to assume we're going to see a lot more of. It hasn't really taken off to the extent that you might have expected yet. Um, but you were generally seeing that the reason people are moving to rural locations is that they can work from home. So they might be based in, whether it's on the West Coast or elsewhere, and they might commute to Dublin or to big urban centres once or twice a week, if even that, if there's a need, if they have to attend meetings or in-house activities. Um, but we don't necessarily see them moving, say, from Dublin to a smaller urban district around the country, um, because it maybe in some cases defeats the purpose. And what about those big commercial entities uh, that you mentioned earlier? Talk me through some of the bigger deals uh, that we've seen over the last two years. Who, who is locating here now? And does that drive up, those? the presence of those multinationals drive up uh, the cost price of rental office space in Dublin generally? It does, it certainly, it has around the traditional office address of St. Stephen's Green and that general hinterland. Mm. Um, the supply of space around that area, Mandy, is, is quite definitive. It's limited. 
uh, and there's quite a strong demand. It goes back to that flight to quality emergence that we've mentioned a few moments ago. Um, so these occupiers are generally less sensitive about the rent per square foot they'll pay. The key is to ensure they get the right space, the best space they can, and they're generally in a position to pay a premium rent uh, for that type of product. In terms of the type of occupiers we're coming in, we're still seeing a strong reliance on FDI activity, primarily coming from the tech sector from the west coast of the US. What we typically see and have seen over the last number of years is they generally arrive initially in a small quantum to take short, flexible leases, and then they expand into a much bigger profile. Um, and it's not just from America. We're obviously seeing TikTok emerging here in recent times. Obviously, um, they went through a period uh, of elimination when they were looking at their European destination and actually came down um, to the UK and Ireland pre-Brexit. They chose Ireland and have now ramped up their occupancy levels. Uh, in Dublin, they're continuing to look at a number of properties, one or two that we're involved in. But their first employee only came to Dublin in late 2019. They now have close to 3,000. Wow. Um, they need a lot of office space to accommodate that. And that's only really kicking off. Wow. So Shane, before I let you go, um, say I'm in a small business. I'm based in Dublin 2 or Dublin 4. I want to try and get your prediction for 2023. My lease is about to run out. What should I do? There's a global downturn on the way. Cost of living crisis. What's your advice to me? Um, I think shop around, Mandy. I suppose there's still um, a healthy level of availability. If you're really focused on being around St. Stephen's Green, then you're going to come up against a lot of competition. But if you don't necessarily need to be in that immediate hinterland, if you've got a little bit of flexibility in terms of location, I would say bide your time. There's some um, very attractive locations around the North Docks, South Docks, and even in maybe some more traditional fringe locations. So if you're not absolutely location sensitive, Um, I think there's great deals to be had across the market. Okay, well, Shane, thank you very much for taking the time to take us through those very interesting statistics. It's certainly an awful lot healthier than what we're seeing on the personal and domestic um, front. But for now, we leave it there. That is Shane Duffy, who's Director of Office at Savills. Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem, Andy. Pleasure. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. The QAnon movement, its history, who's behind it and why it's making the news all over again. That's after the break. You're welcome back. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, an extraordinary story from across the pond. QAnon is the conspiracy theory that Donald Trump has been waging war on a cabal of satanic paedophiles who stole the 2020 US election. These are obviously completely unfounded theories, but are indeed believed by a significant number of Americans. Um, Just to remind our listeners, QAnon supporters were amongst the mob who stormed the US Capitol last year. And the movement since its inception in 2014 has been fuelled by the online postings of a user who signs off just as Q. Well, two years after the silence, Q is back. To discuss what this might mean, we're joined now by journalist Margie Murphy from Bloomberg and by Larry Donnelly from uh, the NUI. He's a lecturer in law and he's our resident Bostonian here in Ireland. Margie, Larry, you're both very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Margie, I might start off with you. When we say Q is back, what do we mean? Firstly, who is Q and what did he do? Right. Or, or she, very, it might be a she. Or she yeah. Yeah, it, it could very well be a woman. Um, it's a really interesting question. So, at 
kind of a basic definition, Q is this unknown figure who claims to be a military intelligence officer um, who's been posting these really vague messages um, on image boards, first of all 4chan, then it moved, uh, it's moved again. Um, but always the claim has been that there's going to be this upcoming purge of the deep state, as you, you mentioned. Um, and the idea is that Q posts these Q drops and then these anonymous readers who are the anons um, are encouraged to sort of work out what they mean and spread the message Um and to this day, we, we still really have, we don't know who Q is. Um, the finger's been pointed at a few people who have, um, you know, potentially financial incentives in being Q. Uh, but at, at the moment, what people are trying to work out now that there's been the return of Q and the Q drops is, you know, who is behind these new posts? Is it the real Q, which is, you know, who even is that? Um, or is it some someone who's just tried to pick up the mantle again um, ahead of um, the, the elections in the US to stir up trouble once more? And what about the timing, Margie? Why do the um, or what are the conspiracy theorists saying about why he's or she is active again now? Right. So, as you alluded to, there was a lot of um, QAnoners and um, sort of QAnon mythology around um, what happened at January 6th. Um, and so, with the with the hearings happening, so in the US now, everyone over their TV, the radio, all we're hearing about is, is the people giving evidence, um, and testifying about what happened behind the scenes on January 6th. So, it's very interesting that Q has decided to start posting again and, and has been referring um, to these hearings. Um, so it, it does seem like someone's keen to pick up um, the, the kind of sensation around that um, and drum up um, interest um, ahead of midterm elections. Um, and then, elect, you know, Trump is picking up his campaign again. And so going into that as well. And Larry, just to bring you in here, the Roe versus Wade um, ruling has been very significant. Do you think that that could have something to do with, yeah, sort of, you know, the, the re-emergence re of Q? Yeah, I mean, look, the United States is in the midst of a calamitous and turbulent period with the extra fuel uh, of midterm elections ahead. Uh, so now is ripe, uh, the time is ripe for uh, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists to spread uh, all over the place like wildfire. And I think it's important to note that um, QAnon is not exactly monolithic. There's lots of different strands, different elements to it. Uh, followers take up things different ways. Uh, so it really has become almost an umbrella group for a whole range uh, of different uh, conspiracy theories, most, most of which uh, are far right in origin. Yeah, that notion of conspiracy theories in America um, from a larger perspective is something that a lot of people are very concerned about, Larry. Um, why do you think it is something that has caught hold of the American imagination? Is it because, and I don't mean to be disparaging, um, they're a you know, there are more gullible people there, they're uneducated. Why are they more susceptible to this? And do you recognise that from the America that you grew up in? I think there may be some, uh, you know, un unfortunate uh, cultural truth to what you've just said. Uh, but in my view, it's down to two things. Uh, one of which uh, the two forces of technology and globalization, which have displaced millions of Americans from uh, their, their livelihoods and changed things beyond all recognition. Uh, they no longer like the country that they live in. Uh, and indeed, a lot of them voted for Donald Trump uh, as a result. 
they're desperately looking for something to explain uh, why we've gone this direction and perhaps uh, a way out of it. Uh, I think the other element that's undeniable here uh, is the issue of the changing complexion of the United States. Uh, racial minorities are growing. Uh, America is not going to be a majority white country in the coming years. Uh, and an awful lot of people are deeply uncomfortable with that. Uh, and that has also made them look uh, to conspiracy theories and elsewhere, uh, I suppose, as a comfort or an answer or something to turn it over. And these, these far-right websites and the dark web, uh, they're full of all of this sort of stuff. And unfortunately, uh, for the reasons I've just listed, uh, they proliferated uh, you know, with the aid of the World Wide Web uh, in recent years. So again, this is why Q, I think, is back. The time is ripe. I'd love to jump in there and, and, and say, because I absolutely agree with Larry. I think that's absolutely correct. But my perspective is, as someone who, uh, you know, I was born in London to Irish parents, uh, lived in Dublin for three years, and then moved to the US, and I've been here for about four years now. I, I'm, and I'm just starting to understand the, not only the kind of political polarization, but also it's it's very hard to to kind of comprehend just how big the US is until you're you're living in it and i think that there is such a kind of separation from people in different states to to washington dc that i think there's this mistrust um and that fuels conspiracy theories and this mistrust you can see it in countries all across europe and around the world but again yes with the with the proliferation of the internet and the ability for people to go on youtube and kind of actually write down things that people normally would only whisper over dinner tables that kind of gives it more credence and then we we see these movements being created that's a very interesting perspective uh, margie and it aligns with a book that i read recently from a journalist from the wall street journal who moved away from america came back 10 years ago and almost found an unrecognizable country to the one that he'd left but can you just um to talk to me or take me through how you think QAnon, which, as you, you said earlier, started on a very niche platform called 8kun, how did it actually move from that into the mainstream media? So through message boards, people being sending links saying, have you seen this thing? Um, th- there was a first of all kind of core group who, I guess, the excitement of being part of a, a movement, I guess, and waiting for these drops. It started to proliferate onto the kind of wider web um, to the point where you were seeing things like QAnon merchandise on eBay and Amazon and YouTube channels where uh, pundits were creating their entire kind of business around talking about QAnon and what the latest Q drop was. Um, and it became this fringe thing that just really spilt out over such a, mm. you know, it started 2017. And then by 2020, you'd see it at, at kind of marches and political protests. Most of the crowd would be wearing QAnon merchandise, which had been bought from you know, big name companies, like I mentioned, Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became this this sort of, it, I say overnight, I mean, it obviously happened over a few years, but it just the, these kind of cottage industries of, of 
QAnon um, and stuff. I think there was a lot of money involved in it because you've got these YouTubers who are seeing that people are interested in it and their views are going up. And of course, they make advertising revenue on that. Um, and the media is fascinated by it. So people are doing interviews about why they believe in QAnon. And it just sort of became this media circus that blew up around it, yeah. um, very much taking out the fringe. Yeah, that vortex of, of um, online platforms, uh, which just fueled the, the fire, right. if you like. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Margie Murphy and Larry Donnelly about the reappearance of conspiracy theorist leader Q. Now, Larry, I want to bring you back in here and to talk about the convergence of this political online movement and the real political system. How did the Republican Party then use QAnon to their own advantage in the, the election of Donald Trump? Well, I think there's no, no doubt but that QAnon attracted in the main uh, a far-right following. Uh, and certainly there were you know, some congressional candidates and now some sitting congresswomen, uh, in particular Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Galbert uh, of Georgia and Chicago, respectively, uh, who flirted with uh, QAnon, who, you know, who, who spoke to them, who said on one, at least one occasion that what they had said was largely right, that they were being proved, that predictions were being proven correct. Um, we've seen since then that they've sort of subtly distanced themselves. Uh, we've also seen at, at Trump rallies, you know, people were wearing Q paraphernalia, et cetera. Um, but this is potentially quite dangerous for the Republican Party. Uh, while there are some, I suppose, on the fringe who may be animated by Q, um, if this is rejected by the vast majority of Americans, indeed, uh, I would suspect by most Republicans. I mean, there are some who believe to a certain extent uh, in what QAnon stands for and says. But to the extent that the Republican Party or Republican candidates can be tagged uh, with the QAnon label, um, that's politically lethal for them uh, ahead of the midterm. So uh, unfortunately, we had a climate in which uh, Donald Trump and others, I suppose, gave uh, comfort to QAnon because they saw them as politically useful. Uh, how much longer that would go on for, I'm not so sure. And one thing uh, I think it's worth noting is uh, we track these things in terms of hits and how many thousands of people go to the sites and look at what they see. Uh, online. Uh, I personally wonder how many of those are real adherents to QAnon and how many are driven there by the curiosity factor or journalism or academic study uh, or whatever it might be. So uh, from my own point of view, uh, I think QAnon is dangerous, scary in many respects. Uh, but in terms of its overall numbers or the hold it might have on American politics, uh, I'm dubious. OK, Margie, back to you for a second, just to look at um, the developments that happened recently in the postings. He said, shall we play or he or she said, shall mm-hmm. we play the game once more? It had to be done once more. Are you ready to serve your country again? Remember your oath. What are those postings interpreted as meaning? The the kind of chatter on Telegram groups and the, the various forums where the the kind of remaining anons are, are talking seem to think that it's it was this whole thing back at, you know, on January 6th that there was going to be this big reveal um, that the military would take over and Trump would be um, would remain as president. I think the idea is it's playing on that idea that all these things that you were told and you thought were, were a lie, actually, it, it's coming back. Um, I I do think that this time around, it's not being as impactful um, from what I'm seeing. And I think that the conspiracy theories have kind of, 
they've continued to exist even without Q posting. Um, uh, some of the things that they, that that Q was talking about before, people still are talking about. We've had things like COVID nineteen, and we've seen so many conspiracies ab- around vaccines and other really unhelpful medical misinformation. And I, I wonder if you know Q is trying to tantalise people here with the let's play a game, but I'm not sure if people are quite taking the bait in the same way that they were before. Okay, Larry, final word to you on this. Do you think that we're likely to see Donald Trump use uh, QAnon uh, in in the coming months ahead of the midterm elections more to stoke and use those uh, dog whistles to, to stoke his own support base again? He will stoke, and I think he will employ a lot of many of the themes that I, I suppose emanate from QAnon. Uh, whether he's associated directly with them, I would be doubtful of, because I think it would be a very foolish strategy. And if I can just make one very quick point, um, the, the, the language used in this posting, shall we play a game, uh, is very much linked to the 1982 film in the United States called War Games, starring Matthew Broderick, in which uh, Broderick was sort of a technique uh, and managed to infiltrate the highest systems uh, of the United States and almost instigate a nuclear war. This choice of language is very, very deliberate because he's appealing to people who are, or she is appealing to people sitting at their computers who feel desperate, who feel out of touch, and this is his way of saying, we can try to change this. We can make uh, a movement out of this. So the choice of language there, uh, I think, is very, very deliberate. And again, it harkens back to that film War Games from the early 1980s during the Cold War. Well, indeed, uh, this all started with the gaming community, so it's very likely that they're trying to tap into their roots again. But for now, that was Margie Murphy from Bloomberg News and Larry Donnelly, NUI Law Lecturer. Thanks to you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.